Hi, and welcome to the third season of the Duck Industry Podcast, bringing you personal and truthful conversations. We acknowledge that the cultural establishment of which we are part still needs to undergo a fundamental transformation of true inclusivity. The Duck Industry Podcast is meant as a source of inspiration to envision a different way, a better way. We want to evolve together and dedicate ourselves to the work we have done so far and are committed to practicing further. We believe the future of this field lies in the power of the wide range of experiences, aesthetics, storytelling and perspectives that you all have to offer. It's a great joy to welcome back our glorious partners and curators, the POC2 Programmers of Color Collective and the What's Up With Dogs podcast. We are also happy to introduce new collaborators, our colleagues from Kinopravda Institute from Serbia, Belgrade. We look much forward to highlighting and celebrating the ideas, themes and discussions our colleagues will bring to this. Duck Industry is funded by Creative Europe, the City of Leipzig, BKM and MDM. We thank our partners and supporters for their contribution. Enjoy! Everybody, I'd like to welcome everybody to the Doc Leipzig Industry Podcast. I'm the moderator for today, and my name is Irene Soriano. I'm a film curator and writer based in Los Angeles. I am a film programmer and fellow for the Outfest Fusion QT BIPOC Film Festival and a shorts programmer for the Sundance Film Festival. Before starting, I'd like to thank the Doc Leipzig staff who is making this podcast possible, and a shout out to Anna who helped put this whole operation together. Our topic for today is igniting strategies, changing the faces of film festival programming. And the intro I have for this is diversity, equity, and inclusion are the buzzwords that litter program initiatives in the entertainment industry as of late. Still, platitudes ring hollow and action is needed. Today's podcast will discuss ongoing efforts by changemakers to challenge the systemic access gap for programmers of color by instituting film programming fellowship, mentorship programs within organizational infrastructures. I would now like to introduce my guest speakers who come with a wealth of experience, knowledge, and kickassery. Um, there's Lucy Jane Mukherjee, a queer British Indian film curator and programming disruptor working to elevate underestimated storytellers. Formerly undocumented, her area of expertise is the intersection of activism and the arts, specifically where programming and inclusion meet. Over her 20 plus year career, Lucy has produced and programmed films all over the world. She is the co-founder of the Programmers of Color Collective, which is a catalyst of transformative change in the festival programming field, calling for transparency and accountability in the curatorial process. And we also have Farida Gabadmosi, uh, a film curator and culture critic working towards making the space more inclusive, in particular, her interests are in changing the space of tastemakers and rethinking the models for curation and exhibition. She has worked in various roles at different film festivals and other film organizations, including Outfest, 
the California Film Institute, Athena Film Festival, SIF, and many more. She recently joined the Tribeca Enterprises team as a senior programmer. So I have questions, a lot of questions, but figured we should start uh, with how we got here, our pathways to programming. Um, so Lucy, uh, and then Farida, who were you before you started programming or worked in your first film festival? That's such a good question. Thank you, Irene. Um, and thank you for having me. So before I was working in festival land, um, I was producing films. I did that for a decade. Um, I was primarily producing genre features for Warner Brothers and Lionsgate. So the films that are sort of most marketable, um, those that have like a horror, thriller or action hook. Um, and of course, they were very white and very male centered. And so that really prompted my pivot um, into festival programming um, because I wanted to support and elevate the films that represented queer brown people, people like me. I studied English Lit and minored in film in the UK under the pretense of becoming a teacher, or so my parents expected. Um, and then as soon as I graduated, I left the UK and came to the US. So yeah, I was undocumented for a decade, but um, sort of racking up producing credits under the table. And um, that um, during that time, I was volunteering for Outfest and for other festivals um, and then shifted into that director of pro programming role with Outfest. And that really came about because of the Project Involve um, program that Irene, you and I were both a part of. Um, so that program really allowed me to be noticed and be deemed sort of eligible by the hiring team at Outfest back in the day. Um, my journey was a little weirder. Um, <laughs> I uh, went to college pre-med, left pre-law. Um, so I wasn't exactly on a pathway towards film. I had always loved film. Um, and I uh, lived abroad for a bit, was teaching English, and then I found myself working with a filmmaking crew and then thought I would be a writer. I'd always, I'd volunteered at a bunch of film festivals, um, but I uh, didn't think that's where I would land. And then I came back to the U.S. and I just kept volunteering. I did mostly operational roles. And then I found that I really, I've always loved talking about film. I used to average like 1,500 films a year. Well, like films and television episodes a year when I was like a kid, which is insane because this is before everything was online. Um, and I um, just slowly started like talking with more and more programmers, um, uh, discussing my point of view. My background is inherently sociology. So I really like looking at the intersections between what we were watching in film and how it was reflected in culture. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I'd been screening for several festivals, kind of like, which is kind of an opportunity to work for free, sometimes paid, but work for free to watch films for festivals. And I had met Paul Struthers, who at the time was the uh, director of programming at Frameline. Um, and uh, he told me there was an opening for the programming manager job and hospitality manager job. So I applied and I got that job. And I think that was my first 
proper paid programming position. Um, and now I am here. Um, it's weird. I've been doing, working at so many festivals um, for the last decade in change off and on. Um, I did like a weird survey during the pandemic because I was, you know, spiraling. Um, and I found that I'd worked at, at or around, because I've also worked as like a writer, as a film critic um, at over 40 different festivals around the world. So just a lot of film festival action in my life over the last decade and change. Wow. <laughs> well, um, so both of you have already mentioned um, somewhat what you're doing now from where you started to what you're doing now. Um, I wanted to shift gears and talk about the architect roles that you've taken on um, in the film programming space. So, uh, Lucy, you are a co-founder of uh, the Programmer of Color Collective. And um, Farida, you created uh, the film festival, uh, the film programming fellowship at Outfest. And I believe maybe Athena, am I correct? Did you have a hand in the Athena? Oh, I was a consultant on the Athena um, film fellowship. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, these uh, types of programs uh, or, you know, groups you founded were meant to change the faces of film programming, you know, in current film festivals. Like, can you talk about your motivation to create these change-focused programs and um, what have been some of the, you know, your big challenges in trying to get these uh, things off the ground? I can jump in first. Um, one of the things with, so uh, I I actually, my dream of building a programming fellowship actually started because I was added to the Film Festival Alliance's leadership lab. And that was the project that I got in with. Um, and I'd actually been part of a programming fellowship um, through the California Film Institute. They'd started it, hadn't quite worked the way that they thought it was going to work. But um, it was really a great opportunity for me to also just see what it's like. Um, the thing, the thing that drove me to keep building these programming fellowships is I did not have a traditional film background. And if someone hadn't taken a chance with me or heard me speak about film, I don't know if I would necessarily be in programming. Um, and I think that there's a lot of voices that don't necessarily have a film background, especially since in the United States, most of our film schools are far more centered on film, the act of filmmaking, specifically directing, than they are in the history of film or the understanding of curation of film. Um, there's not a simple pathway towards it. And to be quite frank, that pathway is usually um, usually only exercised by individuals with um, funds or access to mm -hmm. power in certain ways that a lot of people from historically underrepresented communities do not have access. So one of the things I thought would be interesting um, with building these programming fellowships is A, building them in such a way that someone's getting paid and you're not using up all of their time, um, but also just like creating pathways for people to get into the business. Um, I think the biggest thing that makes it hard to do is that there's actually, it's a very niche position. So there's not a lot of positions for people to get into. So you're kind of welcoming people into an industry that is navigating who could actually be in it and uh, the limited number of positions that exist, but also it's also an industry that's fundamentally underfunded. So like there's not actually a lot of funding for people in these roles. So you're kind of encouraging someone to walk into a space that is mostly contract-based and gig-based. And I think that's one of the things that makes it hard with a programming fellowship to like, uh, it's so niche that people don't quite see 
how it really fits into the makeup of uh, the film world and why that needs to be centered. But we are indeed gatekeepers. I, I put tastemakers in my bio, but um, our role is inherently one of gatekeeping. Um, and how do we change that from gatekeeping to gate opening is one mm -hmm. of the things that I think um, is my goal. And also when building these fellowships, recognizing that a person can't do it by themselves, that a person needs to open the door for more people to exercise that gate opening process. Yeah, you know, what I really appreciate about that is, I mean, I think it's um, a tried and true story for people who are involved in film festival spaces is that a lot of people start in the volunteer volunteering stage. And um, it would seem that you could become a volunteer forever, be very interested in programming and never get inside the programming um, committee. That might be a very frustrating space to be for, you know, volunteer, you know, doing the grind and volunteering for years. And I've heard stories and, you know, maybe after five or seven years, the programming committee of a film festival says, oh, yeah, you know, if you're interested, you know, come on in and then um, get paid um, to do what, you know, um, they otherwise would not be able to, you know, be involved in. Do you find that those are the kind of stories that have also um, been told to you regarding their experiences? Yeah, no, I think that for a lot of people, I mean, I was a volunteer for years as well. So like, I think that um, there's, it's it's unfortunately still a game of connections in certain parts of this industry. Um, and then one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I know Lucy's definitely trying to do with Programmers of Color Collective, is like break down this concept of purely who you know, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, I'm um, creating process where there were handshakes pre previously, because those handshakes limited who could actually get access. So when there's a process, when there's databases, when there's access, um, mm -hmm. it does fundamentally change the system as it has existed in the past, but that's the goal because the systems that existed in the past were made it hard for people to like break through. So creating an actual process, creating an actual system in which people can see it transparently um, is something that's important. I know that was definitely into the thinking of Programmers and Color Collective. Yeah, I can jump in there. I think, um... So many festivals lean on volunteer committees that work for free and are deciding what, which films rise to the top. Um, but they are a very specific group of people with a lot of blind spots and biases simply because they are financi financially able to take on the commitment of watching films and rating films for free. Um, so... A lot of what the um, a lot of the work that the Programmers of Color Collective is doing is elevating the experienced film curators who've been doing this for years, who have a very specific expertise in this field, giving visibility to that pool of people. We're working on an online directory of members, so that will be three hundred members around the world who are um, savvy festival programmers and are. Uh, very much uh, worthy of paid positions on programming teams at the top tier festivals. There's so much to there's so much to share on this topic. I wanted to just go back a little bit to um, my time at Outfest. When I arrived, um, I think the landscape there was a little bit different in terms of who was attending and um, who felt like 
this was their festival. It was a very white cis male festival. And um, so I sort of had the opportunity to really bring the um, the spotlight onto Outfest Fusion, which was specifically, as we all know, um, focused on stories by and about queer people of color. So that was every year a question posed to me by, by the, the leadership of the organization, are we doing fusion or not? And my answer was yes, for as long as I'm here, we are, we are doing this festival. And it's not a, um, a second tier festival against the tentpole summer event. It's very much as important as, and honestly was um, during my time there was um, some of the highlights of my four years at Outfest were at Fusion because of the community warmth and the love that was happening at those events. Um, I think that um, one of the big realizations by my team and I while I was there was that um, there were so few film submissions centered on the trans community, but there was such an appetite right then for uh, visibility and for these stories to be told. And so to combat that lack of content, we created the Trans Summit. So that was like very much um, measuring the unmet need of the community and creating something to serve that need. Um, and that's, I'm really happy that that's still going. Um, at Tribeca, I was, as well as um, programming the features, I was also strategizing the organization's LGBTQIA outreach. So beyond programming, that's also like audience development, ensuring representation among the press and the industry who are attending. And of course, making sure there's queer and trans people on the jury so that those films are getting appreciated and understood um, so that those all were very key factors in like the success of the lineup beyond the actual selection of the films. We, we worked for four years on a film fund for queer and trans filmmakers to tell queer and trans stories um, but ultimately the big kind of brick wall that we came up against was just this unwillingness from corporate sponsors to invest the necessary funding for that program. Um, there was a lot of money every June for a Pride event, but there wasn't a lot of money for year-round um, impactful initiatives that could actually have a, um, have a hand in changing the course of cinema history, which is what we need right now. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those are some of just some of the things that um, I've been working on and that, that are on my mind right now. You talked about pushback, right, from uh, sponsors. I'm wondering, uh, and Lucy and Frida, you can uh, chime in. Um, what were the major, uh, or not major, but what comments did you get from sort of deciding entities as to why something that you wanted to do wasn't going to work in the festival space or um, what other, you know, what what were they saying to you? Why it wouldn't work? It's usually money, right? Mm -hmm. Not enough money. Um, I think that's pretty much the bottom line every time for me. What about you, Farida? It's always money. <laughs> it's okay. always money. 
So isn't that saying that the money that they do go for, um, they're not willing to allocate to newer programs or to newer initiatives, um, you know, versus maybe, well, let's look for money, right, for these new things. I mean, was that the case back then? Because I feel like in a little way, it's changing, right? There's this new DEI sort of fervor in entertainment, yeah? Um, you know, um, so from when you were doing what you were doing and however many years ago to now, have you seen a change or is it still the same? I think that everybody wants to be seen to be doing right and to be um, putting forward a coherent DEI plan for their organization or their event, but very little, um, let's see, um, usually that doesn't result in any actual investment financially to pull mm. it off. So like to give an example of like the sort of blind spots of programming committees that are volunteer based, um, if, if festivals are not invested in hiring trans and non-binary curators, then no one with any sense of authority is determining whether the work that's been submitted is exploitative or if it elevates the community, if, it, if it's dignified or if it's just offensive, nobody knows. And that's why we constantly see over and over again, like really problematic transphobic content coming out of, for example, <laughs> Uh, the Cannes Film Festival, um, mm. there is no one on their team who can speak to that content. And so people who, um, the people who are making those decisions don't know any better. Um, and they just have not invested in the salary of a trans curator to be able to share their lived experience and their perspective, their expertise. I think uh, I was very motivated to create a program at Tribeca that sort of followed in the footsteps of the Untold Stories program that AT&T finance. So that's mm -hmm. a million dollar check every year to oh, a, wow. a feature <laughs> filmmaker. Um, the only real criteria is that they have to deliver the finished film one year later in time for the festival. And that's no mean feat to be able to pull that off yeah. so quickly, but um, obviously it's um, probably, I think the largest uh, financial award in the um in these kinds of filmmaker initiatives so I really wanted to create something like that and I to take the risk factor out of it I said how about it's um focused on second time filmmakers so mm -hmm. they've already proven that they can make a feature it's already built it's already um found an audience that filmmaker has built a following people are hungry for more so how about those second and third time filmmakers coming to make their next film. Then there's less of the risk factor of you don't know if they can deliver on their vision. Um, but even with that, um, it, was, um, it, it was just proven to be not financially viable. And I think um, the, the commitment sort of continued to be shrunk as it was pitched around town. So like then it became instead of funding features by queer filmmakers it was like how about funding proof of concepts for features <laughs> so how about you fund like a five minute sizzle for a, uh, for a queer and trans filmmaker that then they could go and uh, 
take around to pitch to financiers. And even that we couldn't get off the ground. So yeah, I think it's this um, consistent unwillingness to part with money unless it's promoting um, a brand or um, giving sort of immediate visibility and marketing to that brand. I mean, I'm in agreement. I think it is hard. I think there's definitely a shift um, where at least uh, on like where places do want to at least appear to be more interested in DEI. Um, And there are people who are willing to, at at different companies, trying to push those through. I think it's just a function of we are still in these spaces that want that don't want to do things for the for the sake of doing them. Um, they would like their name attached in a certain way. They want it to look a certain way. And it, and it really does come down to money. A lot of people would like to be able to say that they've done the work without actually having to pay for it or pay what it actually costs. Um, so I think one of the things that we're navigating is, yes, a, a, a populist that is more enlightened than they were 10, 15 years ago, but still... Um, struggling with seeing the ways in which they individually or within the organization are part of the problem. I think people like the idea of fixing a thing as long as they're not the thing that needs fixing. But I think that's just, and that tends to also translate to institutions and to companies because they're all just made up of people anyway. So like um, those institutions are less willing to take a risk um, and it is frustrating um, that opportunities do not come to communities that need it because people don't want to take risks, but they're willing to spend money on all these things. That uh, an example for me is like watching all the news around the Woman King and everyone being like, "Oh, I don't know if that movie's going to do well." And then it did nearly twenty million at the box office on opening night on its opening weekend, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's so surprising." But like, if you look at actual numbers there was a great uh, piece that went out during the pandemic of like how much money Hollywood's leaving on the table, not um, green lighting more black films. Um, So it's not, they're just like unwilling to like see, it feels sometimes like they're unwilling to see the information that's directly in front of them. And when they find things that are contrary to their personal biases or their worldviews, they'd like ignore it or assume it's some unicorn situation when in actuality consistently these things have been true. Um, so like, while things are better, you're still fighting this uphill battle of like justifying that, like, hey, we've shown you work, this works. And then it becomes, of course, the uphill battle of when one person doesn't do well, or one individual doesn't do well, they use that as an excuse to never do it again, which is inherently a problem, because it's not fair that everything that's done from historically excluded communities has to be a hit, you know? or has to work immediately right out the gate because we allow other things to fail and grow and change. And we should allow for these things as well to grow and change. You know, I'm wondering too, um, could the push for a more diverse sort of programming um, uh, or a push for more diverse programmers within film festivals, could it also come from you know, the audience or the population that um, these film festivals are trying to um, court. Um, I think for, to some degree, I think the programmer's role is kind of like something mysterious, you know, and um, not a lot of people that I've talked to kind of understand how 
you know, films get chosen, that there's committees, that there are these group of people, you know, huddled in, you know, a dark room watching these films and choosing them to be featured in film festivals. Um, I feel like there isn't um, any education on what the film programmer does or an understanding of, you know, how they fit within these film festival structures for like the layperson. So do you think that maybe, or not do you think, but are there maybe ways to let people know who we are and what we do and maybe getting um, a film festival audience to help in that um, push to, you know, diversify? I think that like some of the opaqueness of the programming world is intentional, mm -hmm. um, uh, which I find frustrating um, because I feel like uh, there is a, programmers there are a number of programmers who enjoy the mystique um one mm -hmm. of the things that i thought was like really interesting was like that um at con that the programmers are treated like rock stars mm -hmm. um, they're not treated the same in the states um, <laughs> but i do think that there's an element of wanting to be separate um which i think just also comes with film scholarship and an assumption mm -hmm. of knowing better in some ways in your audience that i think people some people like that distance um, I personally think that there is room for us to be a little bit more honest about the process, um, more open about the ways in which we craft programs for audiences and not just based on taste. Um, but I, I think that uh, transparency requires a shift also in how people see their roles within the industry in general. So I think that that's less of a, a money thing or more just like that's a culture thing that's a culture shift that would be necessary in order to create a less opaque process there's certain elements that will inherently can't be transparent because they're inherently subjective and um people will have issues with the nature of the subjectiveness that comes with programming but there, there's definitely ways in which we can be a little bit more open about what the process is yeah, um, to echo that, programming is absolutely subjective. It's it's very much about um, what work is resonating with the viewer. And if it ends up resonating with a number of people on the same team, then it builds a momentum and that becomes something that the team want to get behind and support and potentially launch if it's a premiere festival. Um, yeah, I would love to see more transparency around what the field of programming is. Um, I think there needs to be a whole lot of education around that, um, both so that filmmakers know how to better present themselves and their work, and also so that um, individuals interested in curation can see a path towards doing that that is compensated not a mm. volunteer or, um, mm. I think that um, I wanted to just go back to something that came to mind when you were um, talking about the last point, Irene, which mm -hmm. is that um, even though we're seeing this lack of um, financial investment in curators of color, queer curators, curators in general, um, I think a big turning point for me this past summer was seeing brands write seven figure checks for mm. parties at the festival for parties 
And it really left me feeling quite ill when I thought of how many um, queer filmmakers' careers could have been changed with that check. Mm-hmm. And instead they chose to just like blow it all in a couple of hours and get some <laughs> nice pictures for their social media. Um, so that made me really think about like, am I in the right place? How do I um, find like-minded people who also want to elevate these untold stories um, and invest in developing queer and BIPOC storytellers? Um, so that's part of my own sort of mental process these past few months. On that note, um, <laughs> I want to talk about wins. Um, you had mentioned earlier, uh, Lucy, what, what Programmers of Color Collective been able to do, but what are the other wins um, that have come out of you know um, this group of uh, Programmers of Color? Um, that you can talk about. Oh my goodness, there's so many wins. I I didn't come prepared with a list, but (laughs) I can tell you that every month in the the member newsletter that goes out, there are um, always celebratory posts and they're announcing um, which member has secured a new position at a festival somewhere around the world. And so the, the wins just keep coming, I think when organizations reach out specifically to the collective to circulate um, job opportunities, paid job opportunities, um, that's a win because that means word has gotten out about the group and that we can connect um, employers with um, talented individuals who can deliver above and beyond what they're expecting. Um, Other wins, I think that I feel like there is an increasing understanding that the skill set of film curators can be um, sort of molded to suit other roles too, like artist development positions, artistic director positions. Um, There's so many ways that this um, field has built a, a really impeccably qualified group of individuals to lead these programs. Um, So I'm thinking about like artist development programs where there is a real focus on meaningful mentorship. I think um, we've seen, we've all seen so many of these programs um, be a little bit of a letdown um, in terms of, you know, the filmmakers themselves don't have the capacity to commit the necessary time to them because they're also juggling multiple paid jobs and the mentors are not being paid. So they're sort of a little less invested. Um, And that's usually the dynamic. It's the filmmaker struggling to get the attention of the mentor, and I use mentor in quotation marks. Um, I think that we are seeing a shift now into programs really investing in that mentorship and paying the mentors, compensating the mentors for their time and expertise. Mm -hmm. So that feels like a big win. For Frida, how about um, film film fellowships? I mean, well, not even just like the film fellowships are wins, but like, I don't know, I see wins all the time. I mean, just seeing people succeed is inherently uh, a win. Just seeing um, programmers that people that I volunteered at festivals with who are now in positions of power 
um, seeing someone, even if they're no longer in necessarily film festivals, but they moved on to the other, like to studios or moved into other positions in other areas. Those are kind of wins in my opinion, um, because I think that those are opportunities. Whenever I see someone um, who I know moves with this idea of increasing access, move into more and more positions of power. I see those as wins. So like, sure, there's like massive losses and annoyances along the way, but I'm also seeing, I'm seeing tides change and shift in who has power in, you know, slow but steady. And I find those to be inherently wins because it means it's just creating more opportunities for the people who still want to be in the industry. So, <clears throat> If, you know, a film festival um, higher up is listening to this podcast um, and they're saying, well, okay, everything makes sense. And yes, we are committed to everything that's been brought up. Um, can you talk about maybe three starting points that um, for festivals that who have nothing in place that they can implement uh, so that we they can move from a conversation place into an action place um, and get, you know, um, these initiatives or fellowships or groups um, to change um, what their film festival um, is like. A more important question, what values need to be at the core of these type of initiatives, you think? Oh, that's my favorite question. Um, <laughs> but first, I think um, it's up to these festivals to identify um, who they're who, who they are serving, who is their community, who is their audience, and then how do they reach that audience? And um, that, is, that is a big interrogation that needs to happen um, within all of these uh, festivals. But then being able to develop um, sort of a newfound respect for the curation process, I think, and actually like offer year-round paid contracted positions that are permanent, they're not mm -hmm. seasonal, um, that would go a long way. Health insurance, year-round health insurance, how about that? These are not revolutionary ideas, but unfortunately they are very rare in this field. There are very few people um, given that kind of level of uh, respect in the industry. Those roles are few and far between, and they tend to, the people who hold them tend to hold on to them for as long as possible. So you see <laughs> film festivals with directors of programming who've been there upwards of 20 years, which is insane. <laughs> so I would also like to see a sort of, um, a, a, a sort of limited window for those roles. So one person holds um, a, a director of programming position for no more than five years before cycling off and allowing someone who represents a different community to step in. For me, I think it would just uh, kind of just start with just an assessment of the communities, like just kind of an assessment of the programs that you currently have. Um, seeing, um, I mean, no one really wants to like sit and do the demographics and again, film subjective, but like kind of look at the films that you programmed in the past and see where they land and see where your gaps are and then try to bring in programming talent to address that gap. Um, also to take an accounting of the community and the audience that you have and look at the, because I think some of it is, yes, you want to show a wide range of a community, but we all individually serve, individual festivals serve communities. So like looking at the space that you are serving and whether or not you're serving everyone that's actually in your audience is also important. So like doing kind of those sort of like 
I know it's like boring and not quite as fun, but like doing those sort of assessments to really figure out um, who, who is like, who have you served or whose voices have you prioritized in the past? And then who are the voices that are in the audience that you have, or you're trying to have. And then from there, kind of just like build out a curation team that starts to look a bit more reflective of those two answers, um, a, to change the program. So it looks different, but also to look at your audience and feel what, which parts of our audiences have we not been serving? Um, Cause I do think that um, film festivals should serve filmmakers, of course, but also serve the audiences that are in front of them um, and to like guide that audience with stories that they would like to see of their own journeys or journeys that like are connected to them or not connected to them, but just like create opportunity for people to see themselves in the programming. Oftentimes I've seen um, heads of festivals be quite defensive about sharing that demographic data of um, what they're uh, programming team looks like um, but th I think it's really important to be able to share that so that you can be accountable to do better wow. you mean externally not internally both yeah that'll really shake things up <laughs> something so, has to <laughs> yeah no definitely definitely um so you both have talked about like what film festivals can you know do some preliminaries that they can do to start looking at um, changing the face of their programming committees. So, but, you know, high in the sky, let's, let's switch to visionary mapping. So um, where, of course, funding is plentiful. <laughs> um, what would a cutting edge film programming fellowship or mentorship program look like? And what would you want these programs to offer? Um, for me, a fellowship program, especially since, because like at the end of the day, I want, you know, tons of amazing voices in programming, but it is, to be honest, a very niche field. And uh, a lot of film festivals may not exist or change because the industry is fundamentally changing and how we engage with festivals will change. What I would want from a film curation fellowship would be uh, a film curation fellowship that moves beyond just festivals. So like an opportunity to learn what film curation is in a museum space or what film curation is at a theater um, or what film curation will look like online. Cause I do think we're moving towards a place where we will eventually have to look at what online curation looks like, because I don't know if AI curation is really, or algorithm curation is really serving audiences. Um, so I think for me, the ideal, um, film fellowship is, of course, paid, um, but also gives a person the opportunity to see the ways in which film curation or media curation is like can exist in many different forms um, and allow for a person to kind of figure out where they land within that space. We've talked about something um, at the collective uh, that would be an initiative, um, a year long initiative for programmers at top tier festivals at premier festivals to sort of cycle around um, the team, shadowing the festival director, but also um, having placements in, in other areas of the, um, the festival ecosystem um, at these individual organizations. And having that be um, uh, a salary that is shared between the organization and a grant. So let's say sponsored by a, you know, a a streamer or a, um, a distributor, um, wherever that money is coming from. 
so that both parties are equally invested in this person's success and potentially um, if everybody is um, in agreement that it was a successful experience for the the programming fellow ideally they would get paid on they would get hired onto the permanent uh, team for the following year oh wow Mm -hmm. anything else that you uh, might want to see created with if you had unlimited funding i mean if i had unlimited funding i just want to pay everyone um (laughs) but like i don't know like create the opportunity for figuring out um I mean, if there's unlimited funding in the area of film festivals or programming, I would also just try to figure out how to pay filmmakers, I think is where my next step would be. If I'm making sure staff is taken care of, I would just want to figure out how do we create an ecosystem in which filmmakers, especially ones that are not going, that are struggling to find distribution can also be compensated for their time in festivals. But I feel like that is like a whole different can of worms um, that, uh, you know, festivals are just not in space to really navigate. But like one of the things that I'm always trying to figure out is how to, how do we, I'm not trying to make sure, I'm not trying to create an ecosystem in which everyone's like millionaires, because you know, you know, that I don't think that's sustainable and no one should be a billionaire or all the other, you know, right. late stage capitalism shit. But um, but like uh the thing that I would want is to create an ecosystem that is like financially stable and viable and most people can survive and eat and you know, even slightly thrive within it. So if like um that would be the thing that I try to figure out how to make. Um, the business model um, sustainable for all the all the people who are within it, um, but I think that's also just like a complicated conversation about sustainability and festivals in general. You know, does that have to be complicated? Really? Like, um, <laughs> I feel like you know, so many of these festivals have massive sponsors like HBO, Netflix, NBC Universal, who are putting a significant chunk of change and supporting the the launch of the festival every year, if they could just be, um, if they, if they could be encouraged to shift their mindset to understand that. I well, I mean, also... my thing is like, it's really hard to get people to pay for workforce, like across the board, nonprofits, any area of nonprofits, getting anyone to cover workforce or anyone's salaries is excruciatingly hard. It's like yeah. really, really, really hard. Yeah. What I'm thinking is like, um, when you're when a sponsor is considering what festival to invest in or to support could they also commit to um investing in the careers of the of the filmmaker who wins the grand jury prize that year could they fund that person's second feature for example like what are the real um uh valuable impactful commitments that could be made to um to make a change to create a change and invest in like the future of cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, I come, f- I come from the arts programming space and I remember when I went into the film programming space, I was shocked that filmmakers were not getting paid to show their work. Um, you know, my uh, organizing mentor always, you know, from the beginning um, made sure that I understood that as an artist, you get paid for your labor. Um, nobody does anything for free and you should always ask for payment for any kind of labor you do. And so when I went into the film festival space, I'm like, oh, you know, through no honorariums, even, you know, just a little bit too, because they, it, it was almost like, you know, we, um, we're doing you a favor by picking your films and showing it. 
Um, so, I mean, you know, if that's how it worked, I'm like, okay, so that's how it works in this space. But definitely, like in the art space, um, you know, when I mentor uh, arts organizers, I'm saying make sure you get paid um, and make sure um, your artists get paid. So that's a really interesting, uh, yeah, can of worms, Frida. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely is. It's a weird conversation. But also, like, I think some of that's also just, like, the funding model for festivals in the United States is inherently complicated when looking specifically at the U.S. because they're all nonprofits. Um, well, the vast majority of them are nonprofits, um, but we don't act, there's very limited government funding for them. There's also a ton of film festivals. So it just, ecosystem-wise, it's just, like, a big old bag of confusing. Um, but I think... <laughs> Um, I don't know. I feel like the industry, the pandemic has kind of changed the industry in such a way that we're having these conversations about the festival ecosystem and whether or not programmers should be full-time staff or contract staff and what does contract and gig work look like within that space and um, what can you really ask from a person who's laboring within this space? Um, and I think that like these are questions that are I'm very happy to like see are like actively being discussed Um around um, how to, A, bring in um, diverse labor. Uh, well, not, well, I guess we're all, it's labor. I'm not gonna pretend it's not. Um, diverse voices within the space, but also just like, how do we also create a way in which for it to not be harmful? And I think that's the one thing that like film festivals are navigating or I don't wanna say struggling with, because that seems, um, some some places are doing better with it than others. Um, but I do think that is the thing that we are trying to figure out as a, a space is how do we build a space that does not perpetuate or create harm? I mean, I hope. Um, and in the ways that we do that are, you know, going to fly in the face of the way that film festivals have been done for the last 40 to 50 years. But that's also because 40 to 50 years ago, they didn't think the things that they were doing were harmful. So I think that we're just kind of in this space of reinvention, like even the act of having this conversation is a space of reinvention in a way that was not the case when I first started. Um, so I think, uh, you know, things bend towards justice or whatever Obama used to say, um, but I think that we're moving towards things. And I think the pandemic kind of like forced these conversations to be had because people are coming in and asking for these things from these spaces or they're leaving them. Um, and I think it's been interesting to see um, some of that upheaval and I'm interested to see where the path goes as we, you know, do our small part to kind of change things, but also hope that the big things will also come along as well. Yes. Yeah, well said. I think um, figuring out or helping organizations to figure out how to build a, a culture of care for their programming team is definitely a priority for the collective. Mm -hmm. um, when you're when your team, when your staff is made up of one person representing specific identities and communities um, or individuals representing specific communities, there are going to be some missteps and some, um, <laughs> some cluelessness that happens. And so there's a learning curve. Um, and I think that that's something I'm really keen to help identify is how, how do we look after these teams so that they feel heard and respected and um, uh, not exploited for the identities that they embody. Um, curators are still 
every day being asked to do things for free. Um, I was just contacted by one of New York's biggest film institutions a few days ago asking me to um, to watch, <clears throat> I think it was watch six features, six works in progress, and then meet with six <laughs> filmmakers to give them an hour long festival strategy each. And in return, they were offering $35. Wow. So that's like a good chunk of my week that would be devoted to like watching that work, thinking about and writing notes on that work, and then actually carrying out those meetings with the individuals and sharing strategies. I I can't do all that for $35, but there's this sort of (laughs) assumption that we are already being taken care of by someone else. And so Mm -hmm. these institutions don't need to offer any kind of adequate compensation. And that assumption also sort of um, extends to filmmakers too, like Frida was saying, if you're not gonna offer travel or accommodation or a screening fee to filmmakers, then perhaps they they should have the option of not accepting your invitation and going somewhere where they are given something in return so they can experience the festival that, that they've been selected for. Um, the the owners shouldn't be on the filmmaker to pay out of their own pocket to attend your festival. Agreed. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Um, A lot of things to think about and um, a lot of, you know, excellent starting points. Hope film festivals out there are listening. And um, I wanna thank you. Farida, Lucy, for your knowledge and um, thoughts on the topic today. I want to thank um, the Dog Leipzig staff, Anna, and uh, of course, all you out there, um, our audience listening. And um, maybe there's going to be a part two, hopefully. And um, thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Irene.